Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Chiller. This may be the last episode of the year, I'm not sure. Maybe I'll have an end of year look back one um, sometime late December before next year for two weeks time. Was it next week? I don't know. <laughs> this gets very weird this time of the year. Anyway, I am back from travels. I am ready to take a little bit of time off, but uh, I've got a sort of packed episode with links and then a handful of small interviews ready to go for you. So let's get started. Firstly, an article on Fast Company from Harry McCracken. A weird and wonderful look back at the Y2K crisis. Uh, And I I do actually remember this. Uh, My first ever programming jobs, computing jobs were in about, Ooh, 98, 99. So I do remember just just the Y2K crisis and also the dot-com bubble bursting just. I think I was like 17, so I <laughs> didn't really care too much, but I remember it. I also worked at the Millennium Dome, the ill-fated Millennium Spectacular in London that opened on January the 1st, 2000. Uh, and that was probably the bigger crisis, to be honest with you. Anyway, this is a wonderful article looking back at that time and the disasters that we thought were going to happen. But more specifically, the the literature, the, the fiction and non-fiction books that sprung out around it as well. Uh, whenever there is a crisis, there is money to be made, and there was a lot of people who attempted to do so, and now they read kind of like somewhat ridiculous tales of things that never happened. So it's, it's quite a fascinating read back uh, from from this uh, well, well-read article, unless Harry just remembers, well, he's been doing this for some time, so maybe he just remembers some of these books. But yeah, quite fascinating if you remember it, even if you do not remember it. If you are, well, anything less than 20 now, you won't remember it. Um, have a look back, and uh, it's a good it's a good, good lesson learned of, of how crises usually end up going with computing. I think we, there's sort of rumours we may have similar issues with calendars and things like that again. Um, I'm hoping that we have now solved these problems. But if you need a little bit of a reminiscent look back on what we used to do and how things used to be and how people really did not understand computers at all 20 years ago, then have a read. And another article that takes a little bit of a look back but with a more contemporary stance is an article from Ed Bott on ZDNet about how the desktop PC was supposed to die 10 years ago, I think roughly when the iPad was launched and then tablets and, well, I suppose... Um, tablet-like devices all emerged and everybody declared the PC to be dead. And whilst maybe they are not as big or as popular as they used to be, they are still very much here. In fact, they are starting to experience something of a renaissance. Why? I think people realise they need them more than everyone thought. They may be easier to manage. Um, People maybe just like the form factor. Maybe you can't do everything on a tablet, which actually I would agree with. They're very good. They're very usable, but for a lot of the work I do, tablets are still not really the best option. Um, I could do it, but they're not ideal. So this is an article around how the PC managed to evolve and keep itself relevant and and, and keep itself buoyant in sales, I suppose. And again, how we have a tendency to make, well, journalists, I think, which is interesting that both these articles by journalists have complained about how journalists have a tendency to make big, bold statements that turn out not to be true. And I wonder if that will keep happening. <laughs> what will be the stories from this year we look back on in 10 years' time and think, hmm, that didn't quite happen, did it? I I probably assume there will be a few. But still, uh, if you fancy another trip down memory lane, then have a read of this and see 
how laptops did survive. And it's mostly things around weight, battery, performance, things like that. Uh, a modern laptop is so light in comparison to a laptop from 10 years ago that you barely notice it and you barely notice the difference between a laptop and a tablet anyway. So enjoy reading on your laptop. And if you have any comments or questions, please let me know on your laptop or your tablet or your phone, whatever you prefer to use, christianchiller.com slash contact. Another post from ZDNet from Chris on the technically incorrect column. Yay, tech has got his sexism back. This uh, is an unfortunate article. I think something we thought we were trying, we, we were hoping we were starting to solve things like booth babes and inappropriate stereotypization, stereo, stereotypization? I'm not sure if that's a word. It is now. And misogynation, if that's also not a word, I'm not sure, uh, of women in uh, tech. Uh, things like booth babes, yes, as we already mentioned. I know Kate covered this when we used to do the podcast together some time ago. And for the most part, things got a little bit better. But then in the past few months, we've seen some rather poor examples of it happening again. And to be honest with you, I think these are not isolated examples. There are plenty of examples like this, the male, female gender stereotype, possibly caused by the lack of diversity, but also I think sometimes used somewhat intentionally to appeal to certain subsets of people and also maybe intentionally antagonize sometimes, which is irritating but that's the impression some people want to give so the examples in this article are the recent peloton ad i haven't seen this i peloton doesn't exist here um about a wife being bought this this smart bike for christmas and being so happy um and it being somewhat sexist because uh, she wants to lose weight and etc etc looking at the video now <laughs> doesn't even really need to but anyway let's buy the buy it's a somewhat uh, outdated treatment of the whole thing. Uh, women already get enough pressure about uh, body image as it is, and having an ad like this really doesn't help. It's not even necessary. People can just want to be fit without having to mention words like that and then make people feel bad, although that is, of course, how fitness tends to sell, unfortunately. Not unusual. And then there's this rather peculiar one, Escobar. Um, <laughs> this is actually something I should have covered a little bit further back, actually. Roberto Escobar, the brother of the infamous drug lord, released a new smartphone. And, I mean, he's the brother of a drug lord. I don't know what you would expect him to do, but released an ad for his phone with scantily clad women. This is a, a phone that I think will definitely appeal to a certain group of people, and this ad will probably help that. Um, I don't necessarily think that the target audience is going to be put off by this ad, but it's a shame that it has to be that way. These are just two examples. I'm sure there are plenty more. If you can think of any more then, uh, well, uh, I don't know if I want to see them, but it would be interesting to maybe share and shame them if uh, they're more obscure ones. And definitely if um, you're from a different country, not a Western country, I know sometimes the sexism in advertising is possibly even worse in other places, but we do not always see it outside of the Western bubble. So I'd be interested in seeing any of those examples of and what you think uh, should have been done, could be done instead of such a kind of obvious and blatant um, shitty sell, I suppose. And now, hopefully moving forward into the future, leaving behind some of the past. An article on The Guardian from Alex Hearn, 20 tech predictions for 2020. I can see everyone's going to do 20, aren't they, moving into 2020? Oh, well, I think I did seven. <laughs> didn't, no, didn't spot the, uh, the potential marketing bragging rights there. Anyway, 
There's, there's actually, I quite like some of these. They're quite different. They're, they're different sorts of trends from something usually you might expect. I guess the most obvious one is number one, the Tesla truck will not ship. I wasn't even necessarily expecting it to ship in 2020, but that's his prediction. Um, he also mentions things like American products like Google Duplex not coming to Europe. Again, that does not surprise me. Hadn't even thought about it, but does not surprise me in the slightest. Generally, we're fairly left behind here, but also something like Duplex, I think, would meet a lot of regulatory uh, barriers and pushback here in Europe. Advertising coming to smart speakers, I'm actually surprised this is not the case already. I don't think smart speakers have been as popular as everyone anticipated, but still, if there is a space for advertising, it will come. <laughs> so expect that maybe in 2020. Nicely connected into my interviews for this episode, 5G will become meaningful. Uh, I haven't got around yet to doing my write-up of 5G Tech but this is definitely something that was mentioned quite a lot, trying to make 5G meaningful to people, not just this big thing that is coming that people don't really understand, but why should they care? How will it be useful to them on their day-to-day -day basis? A lot of the 5G selling so far has been more on the side of appealing to business and implementers, which is fine, that makes sense, but... To, to get uh, momentum behind it, I think the public now needs to understand why it will be useful to them. And then two more that I will pull out is uh, related to one of the earlier ones that Alexa's growth will probably slow down. I think that's relating to maybe we're reaching seemingly market saturation for the smart speakers that people want or don't want. And that VR will have a second comeback, mostly thanks to, mostly thanks to the new Half-Life game. Uh, I haven't really followed VR. I find VR hard to use, unfortunately, because of the glasses I wear and my poor vision if I don't wear glasses so I haven't really experienced it very much but I think it's also one of those technologies that maybe has not lifted off as much as people would have hoped so we will see VR has been slated for death and revigoration many many times so <laughs> on the note of best of roundups I am publishing my predictions for 2020 for open source on design it should come out ooh, hopefully in the next week or so it's not out quite yet but it should come out soon so look out for that. Now, getting a little bit into crypto space. Um, I have always thought in the back of my mind that there is one technology, one project, one protocol that has existed for some time that was always a bit like blockchain, but somewhat goes unnoticed in the discussions of blockchain, that being BitTorrent, a peer-to-peer, -peer, mostly decentralized technology that, uh, okay, was used for a variety of means, shall we say, just like blockchain, but um, albeit was popular, still is popular. Um, and this article from John Backus on the Medium, uh, he goes into, would the experience of BitTorrent be better if there was a token incentivizing people to be good sharers as opposed to what most people do, which is um, download something and then vanish again, whereas actually the network relies on people to stick around and continue to share. It's an interesting insight. I don't know if, if it would make a difference, um, if it would be gamed, and he covers some of the potential flaws in his ideas. But also, it's probably more that the protocol is too well established to introduce anything so kind of um, su such a big change into it at this point anyway. But still, it's interesting. It's something I've actually thought about quite a lot and how BitTorrent relates to blockchain. So interesting to see that someone else was thinking about it too. Continuing on the decentralized bent, um, this was an article that was widely reported. I am mostly referring here to the one from Decrypt, um, a blockchain, mostly blockchain publication, on how Twitter is creating a small team 
of individuals to look into decentralizing the platform, which I find quite interesting. A bit like Mastodon, I guess. I don't know how they would monetize this. I don't know how this would work. Um, but anyway, interesting to see they're looking into it and that Twitter are sort of looking into how they move on from their current iteration and, I guess, solve some of their issues. Definitely not all of their issues, but some of them. Not much detail on this right now, but watch this space. Could be interesting, even if it's just a research project to help other people maybe implement uh, more viable alternatives in the future. And finally, my tech roundup. This is an article on The Atlantic from Simone Stoltzoff on prisoners who have learned to code. This is actually quite a nice article. I really enjoyed reading this. It's specifically focused around um, some programs in the US and around their experiences with Slack, but employing and giving a chance to prisoners who want to learn to code, who have learned to code in prison and giving them jobs. And in the most part, they're working out very well, actually, and then getting offered proper full-time normal people jobs eventually as well, which is great to hear. And uh, having a meaningful existence is always something that will keep, well, not always, <laughs> more likely to keep people kind of uh, from reoffending. So this is a great article about uh, about those programs and I, I'd love to hear more of them. I might actually dig into interviewing some of the projects mentioned here to to find out a bit more about the program because I think it's a it's one of these great examples when tech companies actually do something very meaningful and very useful and advantage people who are often quite marginalized because um, yeah because getting out of prison and getting out of the institutionalization of it is very very difficult. So it's great to see that people give people a second chance in in the in the future, as it were, not um, kind of learning skills that are not so useful to someone in getting a decent job in the, in the modern era. So great read, have a read through, and I will attempt to get more detail with some of the people mentioned in this article in the future. Now an article on Wired from Will Beddingfield. This was actually something uh, I read this whilst flying, <laughs> which is probably not the best idea. But it's a story about how physics explains, although there's other reasons as well, why everyone's kind of fear, or not everyone's fear, one of people's fears about someone wildly trying to open the airplane doors in flight are not actually possible. There have been a couple of recent examples of people attempting to do so, usually under the influence of alcohol. Um, but actually, as this article details, it's not possible. During a flight, um, when you hear the calls from the captain to the crew to setting doors to uh, cross-check, to manual, to automatic, etc. They are actually handing over control of the doors to the pilot. I never knew this. So the doors can't even be opened anyway. That big handle cannot be moved until the pilot disengages that. And actually, really, the only times it's possible to open the doors are in takeoff and landing. So a very small part of a flight. Also, physics, air pressure means that it would be near or impossible to open it anyway. Um, because of the weight of uh, difference in air pressure. So all these kind of crazy airplane movies are not really strictly very true. So let that reassure you. But possibly more concerning, <laughs> I also thought about this as well, was actually the little tiny windows are maybe potential places where uh, disaster could strike. So yeah, uh, don't, don't, don't hammer those windows, not that you're ever going to, but those little tiny pieces of plastic and glass are vulnerable points, but don't worry about the door <laughs> unless you're taking off or landing. So set yourself assured or not, as the case may be, by having a quick read of this article if you're flying anywhere this holiday season. Next, an article on Aeon from Kate Raworth. 
on the origins of Monopoly. This is a story I have, I already knew actually. Anti-Monopoly, the Landlord game were some of the original versions. I think Landlord game was the original original of Monopoly. The version we know of Monopoly is not the original game. In fact, it is quite the opposite of what the original creator intended. Designed during the Great Depression, it was actually designed to help people learn the perils of capitalism, not become petty little capitalists themselves. And when it got sold to the mainstream, not only was the game twisted in terms of its message, but also the original designer was pretty much blocked out of the picture and next, saw next to nothing out of their design. In fact, no one even realised this had happened for many years later. And this is not an uncommon story in the earlier times of patents and kind of a mass commercialization. I suppose. People hadn't really figured out what this meant yet, so it was hard sometimes for people to understand and take advantage of it. And now the Landlord's Game has reappeared. I think Anti-Monopoly as well, so I'm not 100% sure if that's actually the same thing. Alternative versions of the dreaded game. And as a, as a hardcore game player, Monopoly is like a curse word in my community, but still. Um, <laughs> it's interesting to read the history and origin stories of one of the world's most famous games. And uh, I'd be interested to actually play the original to see if it's any better, shall we say, unless random. Has anyone played it? I'd love to hear. If you have played Anti-Monopoly, the landlord's game, let me know. Is it any better? Is it worthwhile putting up with some flawed mechanics to learn the real origins of the game? Love to hear from you. Again, kristenschiller.com slash contact. And finally, British elections just happened. I got way too invested this time. I haven't actually voted in the country for over 15 years, but I happened to be in the country this time, so I voted. Got very disappointed when things did not go the way I wanted. Actually, they went the way I expected, but not the way I wanted. But one of the flaws with the British system is this first-past-the-post system, which is antiquated and benefits certain parties over others and means that a lot of the time votes are somewhat wasted and do not represent the actual way that uh, people do vote in electorates. Interestingly, a few years back, there was a referendum to change the AB system, the proportional representation system, somewhat like the one in Australia, where the system is very different, where I also vote. Um, and it has its problems, but I kind of much prefer it because of this, this, this way that it gets a, a more broad spread. And this article on The Independent from Adam Forrest details what the British Parliament might have been like had there been proportional representation. And surprisingly, it's very different. It would have still been a lot of Conservative votes, but it would have probably been a hung Parliament with more for Labour, more for the Lib Dems, more for the Greens, more for the Brexit Party, more for the smaller parties, basically. Um, this would have meant a more um, a harder Parliament to get policy through, but maybe a more balanced, more nuanced more interesting parliament too. Anyway, this is all pure conjecture because the system is not going to change anytime soon, especially with the Conservative government, who are the ones that really benefit from it. So who knows? Anyway, interesting conjecture. I don't really want to get too involved in politics right now, but it's something I've often thought about. So it was appropriate that this popped up and I found it quite fascinating. Now I have three interviews for you from 5G Tech Tree, the event I was recently at talking about progress and policy behind 5G. A lot of these interviews are quite short. The first one especially, and the first one, um, three of us journalists had a five-minute interview with Nikolai Astrup, the Minister of Digitization for Norway. Um, 
So <laughs> firstly, you will hear from two friends of mine also asking questions, and you'll also hear a question from me, but I thought I'd include it anyway. The other questions were just as interesting, so enjoy that. Second, I have an interview with Dr. Sanjo Guan um, from uh, Korea, from... He's done a lot of things with regards to telecoms in uh, Korea. So that is my second interview. And then finally, the head of public policy for Europe for the GSMA, the sort of mobile industry body, Laszlo Toth. So enjoy. Okay, so are you actually involved in startup policy? Startup? Yeah, startup policy yes. in a way. And what do you think uh, uh, are the main things to, uh, to do in this uh, field for you? Well, I think uh, if we are to achieve uh, the ambitions that we have for digitalization in Norway, not least in the public sector, we need to cooperate with the private sector. And uh, in order to increase innovation, uh, I think we need to involve the startup community even more in digitalization of our public sector. So I have started working on a new program. Uh, which is aimed at involving uh, startups more in in uh, in uh, public uh, services uh, in the in the years to come. Are you looking at uh, uh, the taxation issues uh, uh, with the stock options? Yes, we, have, we have improved the, uh, the stock option uh, uh, taxation system for startups in, in Norway, uh, in both uh, well, twice actually. Uh, they would always say it's not good enough, but uh, it's at least an improvement. Um, uh, but I think uh, with the public purchasing power that we have, uh, and uh, the fact that we spend about 55 billion euros a year in public purchasing, uh, that is, I think, an important driving force also for startups. So we need to be, we need to buy their products and services right. uh, to uh, help them scale in the future. The problem in Norway, as in Europe, is not startups, it's scale-ups. No, it is. Go ahead. A lot of EU countries are waiting for other EU countries to decide on whether to allow Huawei on their on their networks to supply parts. Uh, Norway being an EEA member, but not an EU member. What is your position? Are you are you are you waiting for the EU to make a decision, or do you feel free enough to make your own on this on this part? Well, by Christmas, all of our operators will have chosen their vendors. So two of our operators are already chosen vendors, and the last one, the biggest one, will choose before Christmas. So uh, we don't exclude any uh, vendors. Uh, and uh, with 5G, as for 4G, we have a good dialogue with the operators on security. But uh, our discussion on security is with them, not with the vendors. And you, you set the, the, the standards for security from the government side, and the operators will... Have to follow those then we talk to the operators and then the operators choose their vendors uh, but the government does not exclude any vendors right okay thanks i'd ask a completely different question and something actually that i pick up from your uh, panel to something that interests me a lot you talked about um with the rise of ai we need to make sure that algorithms and machine learning models are diverse mm. um how how would you recommend to Norway's innovators and entrepreneurs or from the region to increase diversity in a region that is traditionally fairly monocultural? How, how can they learn and, and change those models? Well, diversity is about many things. It's also about um, gender balance. So we need to recruit more women into technology and the field of technology. Uh, we're working on that. 
Uh, but I think this is very important because AI um, is going to affect every aspect of society and we can't leave to half of the population to develop solutions for uh, the whole of society. So this is something we need to work on, not only in Norway, but I think also in tech communities uh, all over the place. And uh, of course, I was just on a panel with just men. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and they're mostly men in this conference yeah. uh, so I think it's not only about uh, monoculturalism it's also about gender diversity both are important uh, and the example I used in the panel I think illustrates this very well uh, with the sensor developed by a white man who hasn't tested if it worked on different uh, color of skin uh, and if we are to get that kind of bias into our algorithms that we're supposed to use for for instance, public sector decision-making that affect people's lives, then we have a huge problem. So we need to get it right from the outset. Otherwise, people are going to lose trust. And I think trust is maybe the most important capital uh, in the age of digital transformation. So you are so you're the Minister of Digitalization of Norway and uh, your neighbors in Denmark have an ambassador, tech ambassador in Silicon Valley. Do yes. you think, do you see it as a trend of the government paying more attention to the tech? And would, do you think Norway would also consider sending someone to Silicon Valley to lobby your interests? We have a big office in Silicon Valley. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so they, they perform much of the same task that the Danish tech ambassador does. Right. And of course, we have a minister of digitalization, so uh, that that trumps uh, tech ambassador, I guess. But uh, yes, this is going to be more important, and it's going to be important also because, in my view, uh, we need to engage more with the, the big tech companies on many important issues. Uh, but in order to realize the potential of digitalization, we need to work uh, horizontally, not only vertically. Our governments work vertically with a, a minister on top, clear responsibility, but digitalization is about what happens between those verticals. And uh, that's why the Prime Minister of Norway decided to um, uh, create this post in January, uh, because if we are to go from uh, where we are today to where we want to be, then we need to uh, step up our work uh, in digitalization. I did see on your initial profile, I'm not seeing it in your badge, about, um, you had it here, I think the, uh, oh no, did it go? Oh, anyway, the um, convergence. Oh, yeah. And I was actually interested to know what that meant to you or what it used to mean is you're not having it on your badge now so maybe you've changed the job but <laughs> what does convergence mean uh, usually the 4g or 5g they just uh, like uh, remind me remind them of a kind of technology or just uh, like information technology or communication technology but the convergence means uh, working with other industries like automobile mm -hmm. industries or like a fashion industry or education healthcare it doesn't matter so which means the ICT is expands to the other industries that's the definition of the convergence for me mm -hmm. <laughs> and you had some interesting mm -hmm examples in the presentation you did earlier for entertainment as well um which i think you already have in korea virtual, yeah. virtual performers and are they popular uh it's not popular but uh, usually tele 
telecom operator would like to show up for like a vision. So I think that's still very expensive, which means the 4K video, for example, they have to multi cameras on it. They have to real time stitching on it because of, you mean the, the do you know the which stitching means? Uh, the one video, one video, and ah, then okay. to make the smoothly yeah. like, yeah. connect each other. Yeah. So in the, in the case of VR, and then you can have a, the well, the VR gear, and then you can see the 360 degrees on it. Mm -mm. If you just stay there, and then you can just watch this one, and you can watch this front stage, and then you can just turn around and you can see the audience. Mm -hmm. It's very complicated. Also, the sound is very complicated. For example, you can just watch the in front. You can he have to hear the, the front sound. And then you can just uh, turn around your head and you can just do uh, in the right uh, yep. ear. And then yep. so it's very, which means that it costs a lot for making the kind of uh, like a virtual stadium or like a virtual idol, like a dance, like a teachings. So, it, for example, LGU Plus case, and then they invest a lot of money in the special studio on it, and then the real idol stars is dancing, and then just the customer is, is joining the dance, and they're just mixing together video. They have to make the like timestamp on it, and then, and then in the customer like uh, in the like uh, the smartphone, and then they can walking together and dancing together, mm -hmm. and talking each other. It kind of a very some nice feature for them, but the problem is just still expensive. Mm. But another application is uh, I mentioned before, like uh, personal, like uh, the the presentation, like a personal like broadcasting mm. services mm. on it. Mm. Previously, LTE and then they can do that, but still not the high quality because of uploading speed is very limited mm. in the LTE. So, but nowadays uh, they can send more than 20 megs, which means. Uh, even the small screen, and they need more than like uh, almost close to 20 max in real time, so they can guarantee about the upload speeding. So yeah. that can be very some. The it's actually an interesting point. I spend a lot of time uploading audio and video. Video, mm -hmm. we have 200 meg down, <laughs> but less than 20 up, oh, yeah, which sure. is always the way because most people don't oh, yeah. do much uploading. <laughs> but still, <laughs> it's. Yeah. it's uh, which means the be not best effort is guaranteed speed. It's yeah. very important. So yeah. sometimes it's working very well, and some some spaces in it doesn't work. It's not guaranteed. But uh, still, I think that in the five G era, and then they just start to the uh, I know though it's just a telecom operator sponsored that kind of a service. But it's still because a lot of some influencers in the for example, Palo is more than like ten mil like tens. Uh, 100,000 or something, yeah. very famous guys, and then they just uh, telecooperator support them, and then yeah. Yeah. priests go, going around the, yeah. some of the nations and then have uh, some interview or like a self interview or just some like nice features on it. I think that that's the very nice feature for the first steps on it. Yeah. But I think that the next step is uh, more like uh, it depending on the glasses, I guess. Okay. Still, they are waiting for AR, like MR glasses on yeah. it. Still, because of, even though the HoloLens 2 or like a lot of some the devices coming out, and then they are still not uh, no. like the satisfied with the kind of some functions on it. So, which means uh, if we just wear glasses and the real images should be comes out, 
That's very important. Also, another one is uh, now the, in Korea, streaming gaming is uh, more mm. getting the popular and popular. And they have Stadia uh, and uh, yeah, Microsoft. Yeah, how oh, you, you know that? I, I, I don't <laughs> play them, but I <laughs> <laughs> do, do you know why the, the computing power is more <laughs> important? So usually for that kind of like streaming like services, and usually they have a server on it and the wired connection. But nowadays, five G is guaranteed a higher speed on it, so they just cut off the core, mm. and they just start. To but still, they need more like a G. Have you about the GPU or yeah. graphics? Some the more than that, and then some the battery issues Sony. So they would like go to the mobile edge server, yep. it's near. But they still the wireless, and then they make us guaranteed. Even though the not too much like GPU computing power itself. So usually we say the computing power offloading. Mm. to the mobile edge mm. server. So mm. it's a very similar concept for like, uh, have you heard about the data offloading, data offloading, which means uh, in the case of uh, 3G error, the, the, the data speed is not guaranteed at the time. So if some very congested, they would like help with uh, Wi-Fi. So they say that the, the, they say the data offloading it's very very similar concept. So they need more computing power, and they would like uh, moving to the other cloud, and then they're using the because of the guaranteed with the high speed. Yeah. At a time, the the wire speed is very lower, so they cannot guarantee they cannot uh, uploading to the other servers only. So that I think that the the streaming gaming now the nowadays uh, streaming video is very common in yeah. LTE. Yeah. So next step is. Uh, Streaming like a video yeah. game is a kind of some one of some the killer yeah. apps. The, the the current launches have had problems, but that's fine. I mean, it's it's new. <laughs> um, some of the points Korea has been held up here a couple of times as a good example of a five G rollout, and some of the points you made that you thought related to it were geography. It's relatively small. Most people are in a couple of areas. You have a consumer base who like to buy new things and you have a government that is pushing people to do it, which any of those, I mean, geography is not something people can change that much, but any, any, anything that you've learned that you think European countries could learn from to help their rollouts? Uh, I was very surprised that, that when I traveled with my wife, actually for UK for a month, yeah. and even just to just get out of the, my the metropolitan area, and then it doesn't work even 3G, like uh, still. UK is one of the better places as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, at the time I just using the Google Maps on it, yeah. so it doesn't work anymore. So I just uh, stopped my car and uh, downloading the whole like local yeah. maps, and then it started the, the driving. So I think that. The more concentrated on the even the, the highway level, also I don't want to full coverage on it, but the, they have to the, move to the so some of the different cities or something. So I think the major like road and then they have to guarantee it. Especially for I was very surprised that the also the uh, subway. <laughs> I think the subway is very important places, but it's still it's uh, not. Uh, it's, uh, London is famous for having no uh, network on the. <laughs> We live in, in, in Berlin, and they actually have coverage. Um, I don't know how useful it is, but... <laughs> Interestingly, also, I, you showed the map of 4G coverage, which was pretty much everywhere. How long do you think it would take to have 5G to look the same? I think that just two, two, two years, I guess. <laughs> it's a very similar way to the LTE cases. Because of uh, uh, I didn't mention about the... Eject 
the period for changing their cell phone, mm. usually eight months is average. <laughs> It's crazy, isn't it? So, yeah. so my, I have two sons and uh, they always ask him about the, yeah. I know, the new phone. I think that it's almost the same feature, but they, yeah. they do like some the change their phone. So which means the, we have a total population is 50 million. 50? 50, 50, 50 million. So I think that already... The change just two or three years and then yeah. two, so which yeah, means uh, yeah. I think within two years I guess uh, also another key factor is a millimeter wave. Yeah. So it's very key concern. Also, Rod Schulz CEO mentioned about the the millimeter wave. It's a very different characteristics of uh, the the like uh, the wave of propagation yeah. level. So I think that there's a ball band is is uh, the each operator has already aim. 100 megahertz bandwidth with frequency oxygen on it, and which means they can guarantee 20 gigabps level. But still, the problem is the mass using the massive MIMO has a little bit focus on the very sharp beams on it, which means it's very hard to cover whole areas. So I think that in the especially the dense area or like a metropolitan area, they can use come together with uh, below six and then the millimeter wave. They can be very extended to the the more than uh, total bandwidth is more than 20 gigs. It can be very because for example, you stay in the stadium like a football stadium or something, and then even though you have uh, more than like uh, 10 base stations over there, but still the in the more than 50,000 people come together, it's very hard to the, working for like a, the more bandits. And then it, it can be very work with some like believed way of bandits and then supporting it together. So I think that it's very the next step should be some, you have to be more concerned about the more bandits. Okay. So our government already started is uh, some more looking for the more bandits yeah. for 5G services on it. So I think that maybe next year another like frequency auctions will coming out in the for the six. Two more questions. Uh-huh. Uh, one, I'll just go from that. Um, you've mentioned some some ideas that 5G will help facilitate uh, in the future. Are there any others that? Um, you think are like very early or no one is really doing it but you think will also come because of it? Still they have some problems even though they just buy a 5G phone and then I cannot find any yeah, difference yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because of uh, I already mentioned in the on the panel almost uh, not more than 95% the applications is almost guaranteed with the LTE yeah. functions on it so I think that uh, they have to find the more value valuable kill applications mm-hmm. using the more bandies. For example, for more bandies, I think that the immersive service, I mentioned that. I think that the, without that, and then I think that the, another characteristics like uh, low latency and then like a, the more like a, some connectivity, it can be, which means not the, the B2C level, which more and more like B2B services can be guaranteed because of the network slicing is a very good function, Sony. So, which means uh, they can own their like uh, characteristic, they, they can make their own networks using the network slicing. For example, I have uh, some like IoT services on it. Mm-hmm. 
very low bandwidth, but the, they need more connectivity. But uh, it's not uh, adapted to directly to the, the like uh, in-house mobile broadband services on it. So they ha can have a very low bandwidth, the network slicing level, and then they can just uh, the nationwide services on it. So they can imagine and then they can make a business model by their own. So I think that that's a very good point for like next level. But the normal usual customers, yes. I think that it's very hard to find some the real. So I think that the, especially some the telephone operators is more focused on the VR, AR, yeah. and the more immersive, but still the device dependent yeah. services. So they're waiting a little bit. So. Yeah. And, and on that, I mean, some of the, the three examples that are often discussed for good 5G rollout, the US, Korea, China, all three of those countries make devices. Um, Europe doesn't really make any handsets or any devices. Is, do you think that's some of the reason that those three countries have, have been able to roll out much quicker because they can supply everything? I found that the, even the, in the, I, when I visited Sweden yeah. or, or like Finland, I was very surprised because of they are very so mecca for like a handset, even the Rukia or something. Yeah, previously. But they are very practical guys, like yeah. a or program like a, like a, how do I say uh, program program pro, programmatic yeah. which means uh, uh, not just for like showing up too much yeah. because uh, it it works for me and then they just keep it for even though I was very surprised and then in the Nokia like uh, like very the, uh, higher level yeah. they are using the still like very old phone like three three four three or four years old yeah. but in Korea and especially working with the operator or like yeah. they usually change their phone every six months or something yeah <laughs> because they would like some the the have a, some new experience for the new phone but they have a still hold <laughs> the yield phones on it so I think that uh, it's a little bit some different like uh, the culture I guess yeah. they're more practical yeah. not just for because of it's enough and, and then so I think that it's from coming from the maybe their own culture or something. Yeah, maybe you upgrade too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm Lazatot. I'm head of uh, public policy for Europe uh, within the GSMA. I mean, you might know GSMA represents yeah. mobile network operators. We are a global association. We have offices all around the world. I'm based in Brussels okay. because of the policy angle yeah. <laughs> for Europe. Yeah, and then. Uh, uh, we work together with our members, our mobile operators. My area is to uh, to, to engage with regulators to uh, to discuss best practice policy approach. I think actually, though, for a lot of people, and this is mostly what I'll be interested in in, in uh, digging a bit more into, what what is the GSMA? What is it, and, and what is it there for? Yeah, I mean, GSMA Beyond is not just a kind of a policy shop. So uh, we also work together with our members uh, to support them in developing new and innovative services, uh, such as uh, in identity. Uh, we have this uh, mobile connect, uh, mm -hmm. now, or an uh, IoT uh, area, uh, and beyond that, we also have the sort of the conference uh, convening. Uh, the industry, you mentioned the Mobile World Congress we discussed earlier, but also some other um, conferences. Uh, we did one in Los Angeles and one in Shanghai mm -hmm. and some smaller events. We also have um, 
data and research unit called the GSMA Intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the aim here is to um, to collect data and uh, assess them, provide uh, reports and background to the latest trends. We also do that. And do you, you sit between regulators and government, or what? What are the components of the industry that you work most with? I um, mostly work with the um, uh, with the regulatory uh, departments and, and people in uh, uh, mobile uh, operators. Mm -hmm. um, we discuss the uh, uh, the latest challenges uh, they face in different markets and and also at EU level. And uh, uh, well, we try to come up with a with an industry view. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, advocate those uh, to the relevant policymakers and mm -hmm. regulators. We are, we are also active um, in member states, mm -hmm. well, of course in Brussels with the various uh, uh, institutions, but also uh, time to time we will visit uh, some of the capitals. Uh, Do you mean member states of Europe? Or member, member states, states of Europe, yeah. 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 I mean, well, I'm, I'll cover Europe. I mean, yeah. the, I mean as I said, uh, I have colleagues, uh, peers doing similar things in LATAM or uh, Asia or uh, Africa. How long is uh, the, um, I'm not sure, do you call it a trade body, a, an organization? Yeah, I think it's a trade association. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> How long has it existed for? Ah, that's a good question. Uh, I should know it by heart. Uh, a long time? Yeah, I think uh, it was established... Um, um, 1980 something. Okay. Mm, you got me up. I need to look it up. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's. Um, uh, I think uh, we we've grew a lot over the, the past few few years mm -hmm. as uh, the mobile community uh, finds more and more uh, interest in working together, collaborating on different areas. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, what are some of the the biggest challenges you find in Europe, um, and if, if you have any kind of knowledge of how they might compare to other regions your colleagues work on, then that'd be fantastic. But if not, then it's fine. Yeah, I mean, what I see, um, there are similar challenges. Uh, when I, I regularly talk to the other colleagues in other regions, just to uh, to learn from each other what works, what not, what are the challenges they face, and then. Uh, I'm surprised that uh, many of the challenges are very similar. Maybe the aspect or the approaches are different. But uh, Europe is, is unique in a way that um, there is a, a legal framework for, you know, for, for the union uh, which allow uh, kind of a more harmonized uh, regulatory approach across the, the region. Um, um, this is very important and uh, and we always advocate for a more uh, harmonized mm -hmm. uh, uh, policies in, in Europe because um, many of the mobile operators work across uh, different uh, yeah. uh, countries. So uh, for, for uh, costs and other reasons, it's important for them that uh, there is some consistency uh, in the continent. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot has, I mean, I mean, telecoms is one of the, uh, uh, the sectors which is... Uh, uh, most, I mean, the, the regulatory side mostly harmonised across Europe. If you compare the other sectors, but still, uh, the so-called digital single market is far from complete. Uh, there are major uh, differences. If we look at the, for example, spectrum policy, which is very important for mobile operators, uh, the way uh, in which um, uh, governments 
decide to um, uh, make available spectrum under the, the conditions and the, and the way they uh, they award uh, uh, frequencies are, are very different. Mm. It's obviously what what you do is a, a small part of the the kind of bigger complication. But this is tendency to think of the European Union as one place when it's not. It's yeah, twenty seven, twenty eight, twenty six. <laughs> yeah, different places, um, all with different ways of doing things. Yeah. While some of the telcos exist in all of them, they have their own policies and their own styles and things like that. And how do you tread that line between wanting to have, especially in the fields of telecommunications where it's largely going to advantage people and industry, but you know, countries want to do it their own way as well. And is it a fine line? You have to tread quite a lot to get the balance right. Yes, that's that's uh, well. That's uh, I think you, you the right point is is one of the issues. Um, you know, we obviously there are member states are different. You know, I mean, um, it's not not you can't have a digital single market without a, a general single market. If you know some of the. Uh, 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 the inputs, the costs to deploying networks, let's just uh, real estate prices you know, for for base stations, mm-hmm. uh, for the sites, salaries. I mean, telecom operators are one of the biggest employees. So uh, these are very different, of course. So, uh, but to some extent, uh, we feel that on, on some of the areas could be uh, harmonised uh, uh, better uh, across Europe. Uh, the uh, the recently. Uh, Adopted telecoms regulatory framework. The code um, uh, includes some of these measures. It's a, right, a step in the right direction, but uh, uh, we expected uh, uh, more and uh, more harmonisation uh, uh, in Europe uh, when it comes to the regulatory path. Also, you know, telecoms is a scale business, so uh, so that's why it's uh, it's important that. Uh, that we we see this, you know, in Europe is also scale. I mean, the Europe competes with uh, the U.S. and China. You know, the number of operators in the U.S. and China compared to the hundreds of operators in Europe, uh, definitely a challenge. Yeah, you mostly work with telcos, but um, I was thinking this the other day. I was speaking to someone from from Korea, and I wondered if if uh, if some of the the work in Europe would be easier if we had more. Hardware manufacturers as well, it's like China and Korea, especially, they kind of have the, the demand and the interest, but also people who make the stuff. <laughs> Sometimes maybe having all three in one place makes it easier. I don't know. Europe has sort of Nokia and Ericsson, but they're not the biggest players, and they don't make really make the like end devices so much anymore anyway. Um, I don't know. Is that a missing piece in Europe? Do you think, or is it not really an issue? Well, I mean. Uh... There's a lot of discussions about, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the supply chain and the vendors nowadays in, in Europe and also across the globe. And then, um, you know, what what we see is that uh, indeed those big players, like you mentioned, Ericsson, Nokia, are, are, are European ones, and uh, uh, it's very good. And also, uh, for us, what is important is to have a a competitive supply chain where uh, uh, the prices uh, will be set at a competitive level, will be innovation. So we we always encourage uh, 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 competition and more players in, in that space. Okay. Uh, so we're here at this 5G territory event. Um, I wonder a little bit, I don't know if you uh, 
doing your job or anything related to it around 4G or around, but it feels like there's a maybe it's just an age thing. I just don't remember people talking about 4G because I didn't pay any attention. But <laughs> do you think the 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 interest and also the length of time it's taken to to um, to to roll out the the upgrades is about the same, or maybe a little bit longer, a little bit shorter? No, it is. I mean. Um, 5G will be uh, uh, more costly mm. to deploy than the previous generations due to the complexity of mm. the network and also uh, the need for a denser network mm. to, to provide the, uh, uh, the capacity uh, 5G promises and because of the use of higher frequencies. So um, uh, we have uh, estimates and uh, for, for all the regions. Europe, according to numbers, uh, uh, is doing well in terms of trials and commercial launches these days. We expect that uh, by 2025, the third of the the total connections in Europe uh, will be uh, 5G. However, this will leave Europe uh, trailing the the leading uh, 5G markets, US, Japan, South Korea, uh, which will uh, have uh, 50-60 adoption rates Mm -hmm. uh, by that time. So... uh, uh, definitely, uh, uh, we encourage policymakers to uh, help accelerate uh, the deployment of 5G. There are certain measures, maybe on the cost side, spectrum uh, deployment. There are a lot of uh, administrative uh, barriers uh, to uh, uh, licensing base stations. This is uh, rubber hits the road when the physical network is, is built. Um, this is also a challenging topic. We talked about fragmentation and harmonization because um, in many cases it depends on not only a national level but uh, local uh, authorities. But uh, in some of the member states it takes uh, like uh, 12, 24 months mm-hmm. to, um, to get a license for a new base station. I mean, these procedures uh, need to be streamlined and, and, uh, and simplified in order to accelerate the rollout. Was that comparable to the past or is that a newer... Speed. <laughs> no, no, no. That's 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 historical. Okay. And then, but but the, you know, I'm, I talked about the the need for a denser network, and so that's why uh, in five G, so this challenge will be uh, compounded mm. Uh, mm. because you need um, more base station. I mean, there is one uh, measure in the telecoms uh, code, the European mm. new uh, regulatory framework on on small cells. We are waiting for the implementing act for that, which mm. will uh, help. Uh, 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 license. I mean, there will be no licensing for that, mm-hmm. um, uh, at least not prior licensing. But uh, uh, this will not solve all issues because uh, for the coverage, we also need uh, the macro mm-hmm. uh, sites. Mm-hmm. And is the people that you work with, do you feel there's still enthusiasm, or are people getting a little bit tired of the, the place? Well, I mean, um, you know, I, I talked about the uh, the expectations about uh, uh, take up, and I think these um, this reflects the the realities of the European mm. market today. Many of the um, some of the uh, countries like the Nordics will be closer to the to the uh, leading players, but uh, many of the operators are still migrating customers to four G networks. Mm. Competitive pressures remain high. Revenues return to the negative territory in recent quarters. Mm. And our estimates uh, to 2025 is that uh, revenues will, in the midterm, will be uh, broadly flat. Mm. So uh, <laughs> I think it's a challenging uh, okay. uh, backdrop to uh, in this 5G race, at least for okay. Europe.
that's why it's important, uh, you know, how regulators and policymakers uh, uh, can help. I mean, we, we see the political ambition, you know, they talk the talk, but we also need some specific concrete measures uh, that will help. But in an ideal world, um, also acknowledging you know, some of the positives that Europe likes to bring to technology like privacy and maybe more security, hopefully, and things like yeah. that, as opposed to, say, someone like China, where it's really worry about these things, so it's a lot quicker. Um, what would you what would you change to make the process much easier? I think, I mean, in Europe, we have a solid uh, uh, foundation for all these, you know, the privacy and uh, security regulations. We have the uh, the GDPR, which is uh, kind of becoming kind of the world standard. Well, we, um, uh, and, and, you know, we also believe as mobile operators that the GDPR is, is, is the right regulatory framework for the, for the, the privacy. Um, what we would encourage um, opera, uh, policymakers to look at these issues in the data economy or more a horizontal basis instead of, um, I mean, you know, these things are not only sector-specific telecom stuff. You know, we talked a lot about the, the, the 5G um, will uh, transform other industries and the verticals and all these horizontal things. So, uh, what we would encourage to uh, uh, to develop framework horizontally across sectors and also uh, uh, consistency with the already existing uh, uh, legislation, such as GDPR. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, and so. If, if this event is on next year, what do you hope will have happened <laughs> in the next year? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. But I'm not sure how much has changed in the past year, so it's interesting to know what you hope would change in the next year. Well, I mean, uh, for for next year, um, we have um, we're looking at a new. I mean, there's a new um, uh, guard in in, in Brussels, new commission, and uh, just the past couple of days. Yeah, so. Um, uh, I think it's uh, it's very important. It can give new impetus to the uh, uh, to the tech policies. Mm. We see very good uh, signs. For example, uh, uh, ideas around um, uh, more focus on European industrial policy mm. uh, that will be very important uh, uh, to help Europe to uh, strengthen some of the uh, the capabilities in the digital area. Um, I don't know, cloud or supercomputing or, or other things. So um, by next year. I, I hope we will see the first uh, results of the work uh, of the new commission and, uh, and I can only hope that we'll uh, um, change the, uh, the policy environment to the better uh, for the 5G rollout. And that all the member states agree with it, I suppose. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> cool. Those were my three interviews from the floor at 5G Technology a couple of weeks back in uh, Latvia, in Riga. Hope you enjoyed that. I have a few articles coming out. I have my revisitations with Linux. I have my end of year roundups coming out. I have oh, a recent uh, Write the Docs podcast episode and a lot more coming out very soon. I have actually some posts I just did on uh, tech writing for developers again. Uh, you can find those on my writing page at christianchiller.com slash writing. No more events for the year. I think my first confirmed event is going back to South by Southwest in March. Maybe going to CES if uh, I can get flights 
last minute at a good price, but it's looking increasingly unlikely that that will be the case. So not 100% sure what my next events will be. But in the meantime, you can find way more about me at christianchild.com, support what I do, uh, read my previous writing, listen to previous episodes of the podcast. I may have one more before the end of the year. Um, I think I probably will. So I won't wish you good wishes right now, but I wish you a happy Christmas. I won't wish you um, happy New Year's, but I wish you happy Christmas. I hope whatever you do, however you celebrate it, whether you like it or not, I'm a bit of a Christmas Grinch, so I won't go too, too into depths of celebratory speech here. Enjoy it. And uh, until next time, if you have been, thank you very much for listening.